Bethany. How's it going? It is. It's going, Karis. It's been a day. It's been a, it's been a day. It's been a week. It's been a month. It's been a year. Like, can we like get all up into it? We will get all up into it. We right? will. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But before we get all up into it, I got introduced to you through some panel. I don't remember what panel um, we were on. And then subsequently, I think we've been on two more panels. I had already heard of Project Let's and I was like, yeah, I get to be on this panel with this cool person. So why don't I introduce yourself so the listeners know who you are? Yeah, thank you, Karis. Um, my name is Stephanie Lynn Kaufman Timkulu and I use they and she pronouns. I am a white, multiply disabled, queer and non-binary person. I also identify as a multi-ethnic person. I come from Jewish and Puerto Rican lineages that are really important to me. I am autistic. I am someone who has been labeled mentally ill for a large portion of my life. I now identify as a mad person, as a mad mother, actually. I have a two-year-old. But yeah, a couple other things about me that are important to name. I identify as a psychiatric survivor as someone who has survived the violence of not just the psychiatric system, but the medical system, actually, as someone who lives at the intersection of some complex like genetic and like neuromuscular chronic illnesses. And it's, you know, been a lifetime trying to actually get halfway decent care. And yeah, I've been in the peer support world for a while doing radical peer support. I've been really disturbed by the professionalization of peer support. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm here as someone who's really invested in seeing what's possible completely outside of everything that we have come to know about, you know, the things we call mental health. And I know you feel similarly. So yeah, I'm excited to talk about why I'm so tired. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So funny. Um, so thank you for that. That is a very all-encompassing introduction to you as a person, you as um, an advocate. Uh, well, I probably would say a- activist, I think is probably a, a more appropriate term here. But, you know, it's one of those things where when we were scheduled to talk today, I woke up and I, and I confessed to you, I just said, said it to you. I, I woke up this morning and I was like, oh, I'm just so tired. Right. And what am I tired about? And, and it's this, this sort of constant trying to help educate people, you know? So I've been doing that all my life really, but now because of the work that I do, it's done with intention, but it's like, okay, but I've been saying the same thing forever in a day in the same places. Are y'all not like, Ooh. hello, You're like what's happening here? You know, just confess to you that I was just sort of tired of having to, you know, remind people, oh, but wait, where, where are the black and brown people? But, but, but wait, where are the people who have lived experience of navigating the mental health system? But wait, and I just kind of am tired of saying that. I, I would love to say, oh, I, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm sorry. There, there, there are way too many white people in the room. I mean, way too many black people in the room. Like, like, I, I don't know when I'm ever going to say that. It's like, oh, well, there are just too many of, you know, one type, two type, three types, whatever, because of intersectionality but I've never had to say that. It's like almost the opposite. And I don't know how it can't be seen. Yeah. And there, yeah, I hear that. And, and also even with that, there's so many layers to it around for me. I don't know. I've been seeing it in this way of just like the most, you know, respectable 
people, right, in our communities getting uplifted and getting to speak places. And even when it's more like radical folks who are invited, right, the questions that you're asked or the conversations that you're asked to engage in are, you know, over here in this like safe place where we don't upset people. And I think that that, that's something to look at around like, who is considered to be like respectable in, in these yes. communities and who's actually invited in, in the first place. And, and the game of just like, yeah, I'm only 26, but I like, I have been in this world since I was like 13, um, after I lost a friend to suicide. And when I tell people that they're like, Oh my God, like, that's so amazing. And I'm like, actually, I want people to look at that and say like, why did like a child lose like a childhood <laughs> and become yes all of these things that like they didn't like need to become and like to see the cycles like but there's that little voice in my head that's always like what would you have been without all this pain and this trauma and being forced to become like a healer when Mm -hmm. you were very very young yeah I mean it's like all of that and, and more and you know I'm I'm hearing sort of the same thing that I'm sure myself and many people are dealing with is we've been doing this like what feels like forever. And and even it's even before forever, because there were people before us and there were people before that. And there were people before that. And, you know, I, I keep trying to figure out, well, is it the way that I'm communicating it? Is the, is it the language that I'm using? Is it because maybe I am the only person many times in the room who's trying to carry the conversation and then bring other people into the room? Am I in the wrong room? <laughs> you know, I, I used to think about, you know, Shirley Chisholm who said, you know, if if you don't have a seat at the table, bring your folding chair. And and I used to love that. And then, you know, one day I said, no, maybe we, no, no, maybe we need to have our own table with our own chairs. And if you don't have a seat at our table, you bring your dang folding chair, right? And I heard Amayana um, Presley say something very similar. I thought, yes, yes, I think this is about sometimes trying to fix systems that everybody says, oh, they're just so broken. But I don't think they understand what the what has made them really broken. Um, and I'm trying to go really, really deep into figuring out, but why do we have a separate mental health system? As soon as it became a separate mental health system, you, we start to be the other. We're, we're the other in, in sort of medical, even with integrated care, it's kind of like, well, sorry, but you know, you have the mental health condition and you, you're going to still go down that hallway over there. <laughs> you know, it's like, what's uh-huh. up with that? Like, is, is that maybe part of the problem that perpetuates what we're trying to quote unquote fix, but we don't realize that that segregation, like I always say separate is never equal. So good luck with us on having this separate community mental health system that is somehow going to be equal to anything else. You know what I mean? But you know, you've, you've talked to about, um, well, first you brought up Project Let. So I want to make sure we cover what is Project Let so people know what that is. It's a story, man. Um, I will say that we are a grassroots organization that is operating both nationally and internationally, led by disabled, mad, neurodivergent folks, folks who've been labeled with mental illness, really looking at building peer support collectives and reimagining our mental health system and what we've come to understand as the only options, really focusing for us on building relationships and new systems of care. So we are both involved in doing like one-on-one peer support partnerships, crisis response work, 
larger pod-based community crisis response work. We're doing a lot of political education. And that was something that was not even like necessarily a goal, but something that actually just had to happen because we need the language to be developed. We need to be having these conversations, even some of the most quote woke and, you know, aware big organizations led by marginalized folks are radically lacking in, in our perspective. I mean, I was just taking a look at some stuff from the abolitionist law center and things, all of those like things that start to be reforms for people in our community are carceral and no one wants to address that or talk about it. And that's really, you know, deeply upsetting. So we're looking at, you know, we're actually launching what we're calling our psychiatric abolition and mad justice initiative, which I think I emailed you about Karas, by the way. Oh yeah. If I did. didn't, if I didn't, I soon will. Okay. Um, yeah. And in the, the third piece, I would say around like organizing and advocacy so that we're actually looking at things on a political level um, at every level and really wanting to further knowledge and language and research um, because, you know, there's a part of me that's like, you know, one, we know shit like, like you're talking about, okay. Like 70% of people, um, you know, do better in treatment with relationship building. Right. But we know shit. We just actually don't put it into practice. And then it's like, we know all the wrong shit. Like we're focusing on things that are totally fucking useless. Um, and we have, um, many great questions to answer, I think. And I would love to see more folks who are invested in actually putting research into practice that makes, you know, a difference in our lives. So for us, for Project Let's, and, you know, I started doing work with Project Let's when I was 13 and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I just knew something needed to be done. We started calling ourselves Let's Erase the Stigma. And we've now changed our name to Let's End the Sanism because that's, you know, part of the problem for me was that I was indoctrinated to see everything as that on the interpersonal level, that stigma was the main thing, was the main barrier. And that thing, that hasn't changed since I was 13 years old. That biochemical overtaking of, I'm just like you, schizophrenia is just like diabetes, you treat it with a pill, like that thing, that lie um, is one that like, I really believe is at the heart of what we need to undo, like our generation of mad, mentally ill, disabled folks, like who are in the mental health world, we need to tangibly undo that. Um, Because like, if we're sitting around waiting for a moment where psychiatry comes for itself, it's not going to come for itself. Psychiatry Mm -hmm. is a global industry that makes a hell of a lot of money. And it will never say like the re we know the research isn't even there, right? It's just a, a narrative lie that they were able to sell. And to sell to the level that we, like, I see things online all the time, like, oh, you know, this neurotransmitter is doing this today. And like the way that we've like, I know, like the way we've biologized our lives is wild, but I will say there's a purpose for it on a, on a personal level. Like for me, when I got, when I saw my first psychiatrist, when I was 14, maybe, and I remember the first time, like, he brought my parents in and wanted to explain to my parents, you know, that I was depressed and this is how the brain works. And this is how antidepressants work. My parents were very like, no, we don't know anything about this. We don't want you on any medications. And my father called his doctor and his doctor was like, no, the black box warning. Like we don't want her to kill herself. Like no meds, no meds, no meds. At the time I'm 13, I'm depressed. I'm self-harming. I'm like, my parents, you know, they don't know anything about me. I need help. I want the meds. Give me the meds. Like 
this man, my psychiatrist, I later realized he became like, he became the mediator, right? He was able to communicate my distress to my parents in a language that they could understand. They weren't hearing me. They weren't seeing me. But what they had to deal with was that a psychiatrist was telling them that their daughter was depressed and needed to go on Prozac, right? And so like, I've read some really interesting research pieces around like how like, you know, particularly like young girls, right? We're so angry, right? You know, right, want to go on right. Prozac to communicate something. And I like, I don't want that to be taken in a way that that's manipulative or attention seeking as it always does. These are, this is how we communicate, particularly, right? Like marginalized people, women, femmes, for example, we've been, keep it in, right? Don't say anything. Yeah. So shit comes out in other ways. We have to communicate with the tools that are available to us. So it's like, that's why it's hard to look at one part of the system and say, slash it, because actually everything has to change like this. It all has to change together. Yeah. That's, the I mean, a system is not, doesn't sit by itself, right? A system, everything is connected to everything else. So as soon as you like touch one thing, it's almost like a, you know, a domino effect or a, uh, it's called a Rube Goldberg, where, you know, when you start to touch one thing, everything else starts to do something, right? So you have to understand all of those things and where, if you're moving one thing, um, where does it affect something else? The other thing that I, you know, I was, you know, getting ready to go, you go girl. Cause I was like, okay, okay. Like you are hitting on it. Right. And this, this is, this is where I keep saying, and it was really interesting when we were trying to do some work out here on our um, peer certification and, and getting a bill passed and et cetera. And, and the bill was passed and we were working on the core competencies, you know, cultural competency was in there. And I was just kind of like, I wanted, I was having an eyeball roll moment. I know it wasn't right, but I had it. I had it. <laughs> and I said, um, you know, cultural competency is an important, but cultural culture is not racism. And we, we really need to address how people in uh, communities and in the world are impacted by racism and how that trauma affects us, affects our emotional well-being. I will say it affects our mental health, not to say that it creates mental illness, because there's not that binary for me about mental health or mental illness. So that's why I talk sometimes about sort of emotional well-being. But I said, so we need to look at some of the uh, systematic issues. And so it's not just cultural competency, it's also structural competency. How do we, we can't make, we can't provide support, peer-to-peer -peer support, so that we're helping people, quote unquote, feel better to go back into communities and societies that are like effed up. Like that to me, that's, that's almost like opposite of what any peer would want to do, right? So I brought that up and this is what happened. Oh, we don't need that. Um, we only work at the individual level. We only support individuals. We don't need structural competency. And I'm thinking, okay, who the hell is saying this? What's going on? What's happening? What's happening? And it was like, and there were majority white people talking and they said, we don't need this. And I'm thinking, how can you talk back to a black person saying that racism and intergenerational racism is messing with our health? That is like a known fact. And then say, we don't have any obligation to address that. What the hell, right? And then like some, some black folks who were on the call was like, I don't really want to talk about like slavery and I don't. And then I started to think, what, well, what's happening here? Like you can choose mm. as the recipient of the peer support where you want to go with this or not, because you're the, the peer supporter is supposed to sort of 
I, I don't want to say be um, agnostic to certain things, but but certainly it's like you don't you don't as the peer supporter have to talk about racism. You as a peer supporter may have to help a person understand, especially if a person brings it up or they haven't about racism and the impacts of racism. If we don't understand that and we don't do that, then we suck. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. Straight we up. Suck. And I'm, I'm not going to be okay with, and that's why I say, you know, these systems sit in communities these, and these communities are struggling and they're struggling for all sorts of reasons, but we keep trying to fix the people. Like you can't mm-hmm. medicate away racism and the impacts of racism. You can't medicate away sort of, um, you know, ableism and sanism and racism and sexism. And, you know, that sounds like a really big ask, but at some point we have to address it. Otherwise nobody's going to be well. I'm sorry. Did I just go too heavy? I told you I was tired. I told you I was tired. You did it. It just, it just brings me up to, you know, this, this situation that keeps coming up. I don't know if you've been involved in all the like trauma dumping conversations and seeing that around and just, you know, this, this idea that keeps coming back that like, all of these like multiply marginalized people who've been through like endured, like horrific systemic violence, like not having anywhere to like put it right. Because going into like friendships and then um, people being like, well, I don't have space for that. I can't, I can't, I can't. Uh, I was working with someone who was just incarcerated in a psychiatric facility for like over a month and then was in a day program And they told this person, you are not allowed to talk about what happened to you because it'll be too upsetting for other people to listen to in, in a program. So you admit that the things that you do to people are so terrible and so upsetting. And then tell them to shut up about it. (laughs) We literally can't talk about it because it'll be too upsetting for other people. But, but for us, you know, we're just expected to walk around and carry that and feel like these walking triggers of like who we are and what we've been through is too traumatic for other people to possibly deal with. And then you have to worry about, you know, I literally saw like on TikTok, this therapist being like, oh my God, like on the first session, my client comes in and just like is trauma dumping. Like, what is that? Like, like, you oh, can't... time for you to find a new profession is what right. it is. Exactly. And, but you Lord. have people who see this and go, wait a minute, like, yeah, like, you're not a burden. You're not right. But then everything about our society and our culture says you are a burden. Keep it to yourself. So then you have, OK, go to therapy, go to peer support. We have to ensure that the people are going to encounter someone who is at bare minimum competent, right? Competent and able to then say, you know, actually, I'm not the person. Right. Or maybe I'm not sure how to navigate that. Right. But we don't even have those skills. <laughs> we, we can't even yeah. say. Hey, tap me out. Right. I don't know if you've done the intentional peer support training. Um, I finally went through it and, you know, there's a lot of great stuff there, but again, there's always like, it's just one day, one section on culture and race and power and privilege. It all just gets lumped into one, you know, four hour section of like a 40 hour training, even though you can't talk about anything else without the lens of power and privilege and like everything is impacted. It's not just one four hour section and it's such a total failure and oh, I don't want to politicize it. Well, we have to, right? Like it's like either on the side where things are politicized and like where people are actually working to like really make a difference in terms of like a, like a material changes for our community members or be on the side where it's all 
fluffy and that's fine, but we're not doing the same thing. We don't have the same goals. And I want to be like, so, so, so clear on that. So we're actually able to like, to have places to put things down. We need, we need peer support to be safe for black people, for queer and trans people. We need healers who aren't just like, Oh, like my healing is this thing. And if you think good thoughts, then, you know, I'll pray for you in your wheelchair and maybe you'll be able to walk again. No, like, right. Like you have to be able to have more than competency. So I, I agree, Karaz. We got a lot of work to do. My God. We, we got work to do. We got work to do. <laughs> and uh, we didn't really get into 988 and we, we won't really, I mean, I think in some ways, let's, let's put it this way. I'm going to put 988 in this container and, and um, let, let's see if we can use this as a way to kind of uh, move towards the closing, but, but is everything we've talked about is within what we should be thinking about in 988 and quote unquote crisis system reform. I don't know why we're calling it crisis system reform. There's no system there that there was no system there to begin with. So I don't know what the heck we're reforming, but, but <laughs> anyway, um, but, but, you know, I, it's whatever it's terminology, which that's what I do is I interrogate the terminology and go, does that even really make sense? But nonetheless, I think, you know, what's been missing out of 988 is some of the things we've been talking about, which is where is our not involvement, come and tell your personal story, come and tell me like what you do, come and tell me what you would want, but really collaboration in the development of what should this look like? What would benefit not just communities, but my community? I mean, the answer has been 988 mobile crisis response. Maybe mobile crisis response might not fit in my community. Maybe it's something completely different. I don't know what that difference is, but we haven't been at that table. Nobody's been at our tables. And I'm going to be 1000% honest and say, I'm really nervous because all eyes are on this sucker. Lots of money is on this. On, uh, and, and I'm, I'm really nervous. And I'm hoping that when people listen to, you know, us talking or listen to you talking here, there, you know, that, that they're, that they're really, really listening and not just listening, but stopping and saying, oh crap, I got to do this differently. A lot of trust in people. Yeah. But the thing is like, people are putting a lot of trust in these systems, right? Like honestly, today, today was a really hard day. First, I don't know if you've seen about crisis text line, that crisis text line is, you know, selling our pain for profit to these, you know, for-profit company companies to better design customer service experiences, which people did not consent to. And now we have- oh, that is brand new information Oh, because yeah, crisis text didn't used to collect the information in that way and use it. Oh, so now, yeah, we had a, a study. I'll send you a study from Politico. Um, yeah, where they are uh, sharing data externally with for-profit companies Facebook's got out. Well, we knew Facebook had access to data. Um, they yeah. don't use it unless it's imminent harm, right? Imminent risk, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, oh, you did put it, that you know, in air quotes. Did you not? They don't use it. I did. It I did. <laughs> okay. I forgot. Folks can't see me. Yeah. Those, that was in air quotes. Okay. Um, but yeah. And then, you know, there was a piece that just came out in Madden America talking about all this money that's going to 988 and how. 980, the you know National Suicide Prevention um, line that's kind of running this has this lived experience committee that has been like vehemently opposed to call tracing and to mass surveillance technology being used 
And basically they're saying, you know, thanks for, thanks for sharing, but we don't care. And they're going, you know, lobbying to Congress for access to these like highly advanced mass surveillance equipment that apparently like some police don't even have access to essentially. And it's funny because they're using the argument or one of the arguments is that about 20% of people uh, don't live in the area where their uh, zip code is. So we need call tracing and geolocation for every person who calls so that we can direct them to the correct line. Um, so I guess, you know, we're in a process of waiting to see, like, are they going to allow 988 to have this treasure trove of data? I will say that, like, the people I'm in community with are not comfortable with it. Like, if this moves forward, and to be honest, the trust is, like, a bit already destroyed because it's like what's going to be happening behind closed doors that we don't really know about. And the other really strange part is that I know, or I read in this article that funding seems to be totally concentrated into the hands of like the national suicide prevention line and its call centers rather than, and we know who, who like the call centers will be who they choose, not community call centers who are going to risk losing a massive amount of federal funding. So it's one of those things, again, where if you just look at it and say, great, we're going to have this 988 option without saying, who's training these people? Who's answering the phones, right? Is it someone who's trained by a person who thinks that we can create a formula for human empathy? Or, you know, is it someone who actually, are they calling the police? Are they tracing my phone? When I go to get disability insurance or benefits, is my record of usage from the National Suicide Prevention Line going to be in there? I don't Mm -hmm. know. And so there needs to be full and total transparency. The fact that like community organizations and leaders in this space have not been at the forefront of these conversations is pathetic, honestly. Um, And I I really hope that there is some like repair done to, I don't see anyone even talking about it because the last thing I'll say here is this is like a moral injury for me, right? Like as someone who's been Mm. like actively labeled as psychotic who's had quote delusions about being surveilled. Like I almost had to drop out of college because I could feel that I was being watched and surveilled. I was going literally insane um, until I had gone to see enough like community healers to verify like my extra perceptions of things. But there are so many people rotting in cages under guardianships on forced medication because they sensed something that the dominant social order didn't want them to sense or see or feel. And so now, you know, to have Politico be like, yeah, actually all your dad is being sold for money. Yeah, actually all these things that, you know, you've been afraid of surveillance, blah, blah, blah. It's real. Okay. Like we don't have time to wait for the next investigative journalist to verify that we're not totally crazy. Like that for me, I'm like sitting with that weight of like, there are too many people have been told, no, 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 you're wrong. Like, Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So his thought was going to end. Up, okay. <laughs> I just, I'm like, ah. and yes, it actually was brought up early in some of the national conversations about the concern around geolocating. And now you're saying, yes, there's a lived experience group that has even bought it up. And, and I, and I, under, and, and part of me goes, okay, yes, actually that th- does make sense. Like, are you getting um, the call to the right location? And also part of me says that, if you're on the phone, if I'm on the phone with somebody, my first thing is to, yes, of course, check on safety and develop relationships. So I'm doing two things at once. And in that development of relationship, 
how, if that person starts to, to relate in whatever way we're relating, do I work to get that call to the person versus using a subversive measure to get the call to the person? And I don't, I, you know, maybe geolocation is subversive. I, you know, that's the word I'm going to use right now because it's not really trusting the people. And, and it's also not trusting the caller to be able to develop that relationship to be able to say, this is where I am. And by the way, you know, you're not really helpful for me because if you're not here where I am to get me connected to these local resources, but that's not going to be helpful for me. So how can we also help people know when you're calling, why it is you may want to identify where you are, because we want to get you connected to the things that you want not connected to the police, not connected to involuntary care, not con- but connected to the things that are that you need or want where you are or where you want to be. You know what I mean? I don't know. It's just, I, I could just go, I, I'm not going to go on and on and on because we could be on this thing and we're over time. I know, but, like, how many hours do we have? But, like, maybe we should just yeah. go together because I could talk to you for, for a long time here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, so I know we're leaving people hanging on this, like, really important information around kind of what's happening with our data, what's happening within 988, how do people have a role? Please do look at your, each state um, should have a planning committee uh, for 988 and uh, the crisis work. So please, please, please look at your state department of either behavioral health, mental health, or health services to find out um, if you want to be involved. That's that's where I would start, um, I think, is um, at the state. Otherwise, you can call your local MHA or what have you who would know. But um yeah, I just I just feel horrible like leaving people hanging. Yeah, we just like threw that out at you. And now we're leaving. Thanks for joining, Stephanie. Like, we're <laughs> being surveilled. Like I know I don't yeah. <laughs> yeah, but everybody, you know, there are places in which people can make a difference. There really are. And we, we want people to uh, know if you're listening that the, if this is something of interest to you and you want to get involved. Certainly, um, you know, contacting either one of us, um, you're with Project Let's. People know that I post on, um, they can post in the comments to, uh, to the podcast, et cetera, and we'll make sure folks are connected to where they need to be connected. But this has been a very interesting morning. I was really tired, but now I feel a little energized. I feel like, I feel like I'm, I'm not alone and I always know I'm not alone in this stuff, but this was really what I needed plus a little bit of caffeine. I'm good to go. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me um, today, Stephanie on um, unapologetically black unicorns. Thank you so much, Karis. Yeah. I'm like, I'm going to go right. I have a lot of feelings right now. And yeah. the last thing I'll say is if folks are interested in volunteering to help build non-carceral crisis response systems, we are always looking for, for folks to get involved. And we're at Project Let's L-E-T-S on social media, our website, and please reach out and connect y'all. We, we need like, we need everyone in, in this work to make a difference. So I love everything you're doing, Karis. You're amazing. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll put that um, information in the um, podcast description for this episode. So, uh, you know, thanks everybody for listening in and for joining in the conversation. And just a reminder, you know, there'll be another guest also next week. So make sure to join in next week as well. Thanks so much.